Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode 608 of the podcast and it's Friday 4th of March 2022 as I record this. On today's show, I talk to Dharma Kelleher about dealing with self-doubt, imposter syndrome and writer's block and how we can find joy in the writing process rather than attaching our happiness to specific outcomes or measures of success, which is certainly easier to talk about than it is to do. (laughs) We also discuss writing diverse characters in an era of cancel culture. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, one of the biggest stories right now is Brandon Sanderson's surprise Kickstarter with four secret novels for his audience. And the project is currently at around $20 million and it still has the rest of the month to run. (laughs) So goodness knows where it's going to get to. But it really is brilliant. I definitely recommend you go and watch his video, even if you don't want to support the Kickstarter, because it's a masterclass in how to engage your fans and sell direct. Brandon is charming. He's clearly prolific. He he brings out these manuscripts. So the books are done and uh, he does work with, um, obviously he works with a printer and fulfillment and all of that. But this is essentially self-publishing for a very big name fantasy author who is mainly traditionally published. Now, these are four new books um, and he has done a Kickstarter before on a special edition. But I absolutely imagine that there are lots of traditionally published authors and publishers and agents now going, uh, why don't we use Kickstarter for more projects? So obviously Kickstarter is nothing new and there are lots of indie authors. Uh, I know lots of authors who've done Kickstarters uh, who uh, haven't necessarily talked about it on the show. Um, my friend Mark Leslie Lefebvre, obviously, uh, he's done some. Uh, Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush do regular Kickstarter projects and that there are lots of people who do Kickstarters. It's just become a, almost a normal part of going direct and a a different way of of reaching people with different kinds of of work. Um, And this is definitely something I am looking at. I'm kind of 96% sure that I will be doing a Kickstarter, probably for how to write a novel. And uh, I've got lots of ideas for all the different tiers I could do. uh, But I definitely predict a boom in book Kickstarters (laughs) coming off the back of what Brandon's doing. And coincidentally, I just this week, in fact, before this launched, uh, I recorded an interview about selling on Kickstarter with Monica Leonel, because uh, she did one about this book. And I supported that. And I wanted to ask her lots of questions. So that's going to come out in the next couple of weeks. If you're thinking of doing a Kickstarter, there's a lot uh, to be learned in order to get it right. So I'm going to do a project plan and I'm taking it quite seriously. But uh, what Brandon's doing, obviously, I would not be aiming. Well, I mean, we would all love to make that kind of money. But there's he, he's basically spent however many years, 20 years, whatever it is, building up a fan base for that. But yeah, interesting times selling direct through Kickstarter. 
Then there are a couple of physical bookstore related things, which I wanted to talk about because they indicate further issues in the business model of selling print in physical stores. So first here in the UK, the bookstore consolidations continue, which is what tends to happen when, uh, you know, the money, the money's not good enough to sustain so many companies. Now, Waterstones acquired the bookstore chain Blackwells this week, and it was a family owned independent bookstore chain and one of its branches, in fact, two of its branches were some of my favourite bookshops in the world, Blackwell's at the Welcome Collection, uh, which uh, I have so many books from that store, you know, history of anatomy and psychology and death culture art. Like seriously, I spent so much money in that Blackwell's. And the other Blackwell's is the one in Oxford, which is incredible. They're downstairs, the Norrington room. It, 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 you can't go to Oxford as a bibliophile without going into Blackwell's and spending money. <laughs> Now, interestingly, oh, I should say the one in the Welcome Collection, they closed during the pandemic and didn't open again. And I emailed them and they, they're not opening that store again. So that was very, very sad. They were incredibly curated, well curated for um, that kind of audience, me. <laughs> but um, yeah, things change, obviously. Now, Waterstones owns... Blackwells. They also own Foils, which they bought a few years back, and Hatchards and the majority stakeholder. And those are, if you're not in the UK, those are other bookstores here in the UK. And then the major majority shareholder in Waterstones is the Elliott Management Corporation, which is an activist investment fund who also own Barnes & Noble in the USA, which they bought in 2019. Now, this is all interesting to me, <laughs> hopefully to you. And this is a kind of macro level of publishing we're talking about now. Uh, it's essentially a, an activist investment fund like Elliott Management. They they are not about to run a physical bookstore chains for the long term. They will have some kind of plan to get a return on their investment. And they're, because they're an activist fund, what they tend to do is sort of buy things cheap, do things to make these companies worth more and then sell them again. Now, the pandemic obviously threw a spanner in the works for physical stores. Uh, buying Barnes & Noble just before the pandemic was probably a big deal. Uh, but so it has perhaps reset the clock on how long they might want to keep these companies before looking to sell out again. But change will happen. There is absolutely no way. Like I cannot see any way with all my knowledge of business and what an activist fund does. They don't just sit on a company and run it. <laughs> They do something and sell out and make a return on their investment. So, yeah, keep an eye out on that probably within the next five years. Um, so that's my pick. Also on physical bookstores, Amazon is shutting 68 retail stores, including its bookstores. Now, uh, Digital Trends had a very had a tiny little thing at the bottom, which I read, which said revenue from Amazon's brick and mortar stores accounted for just 3% of its $137 billion sales during its most recently reported quarter. And most of that 3% comes from Whole Foods subsidiary and they're keeping the Whole Foods and the, the fresh stuff. But the retail stores, bookstores, for example, definitely worth having a look at if you're interested in this. I'm interested in this because, and again, this is a macro company economics, business change type of thing. And uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't necessarily affect us, but I think it will eventually. So 
Why this is interesting, Andy Jassy took over from Jeff Bezos as CEO of Amazon in July 2021. He came up through AWS, Amazon Web Services, which is the the most profitable side of the business. And it's the infrastructure side, the tech side, rather than the store or the content. Now, a new CEO will always change things. Like part of the reason companies change CEOs, obviously, Jeff wanted to go to space and McKenzie gave loads to charity and disappeared uh, or, you know, into happy new marriage. Uh, but essentially, a, a new CEO will change things. So I can see Andy coming in and essentially saying, give me a list of everything we do in the order of revenue generation and profitability and all the metrics of business. And if you put everything in a big uh, column, and we, you know, we should do this too. This is the kind of the 80-20 rule. 20% of your work makes 80% of your profit, all of that type of thing. So if Amazon made a big list of everything that they currently do, and then looked at the bottom third of the list, or even the bottom 20%, and had a couple of questions. First of all, is it worth it financially? And clearly, it is not worth it financially for those stores. So if they were the bottom 3%, off they go, basically. The second question is, is it worth it when we're facing antitrust investigations? Now, the antitrust issue for Amazon is basically if you own the store and the marketplace and you own advertising and you own infrastructure, it is not fair that you also own the content and you preferentially sell that content uh, and products and all of that as no one else can compete. Now, that is the uh, what Amazon is facing in terms of antitrust from the US government, from the EU, from lots of places. Now, I've thought for a while, and I've talked about this on the show, that I think Amazon will proactively shut down businesses or spin them off into something new or sell them in order to make the antitrust issue go away. I do not think they will allow a government to force something. I think they'll proactively do it first. So, uh, for example, when Google became Alphabet in 2015, they basically restructured. So Google was the main company, then Alphabet became the main company, and Alphabet has a ton of companies now. If you go and have a look at the... Uh, it's it's abc.xyz, which is just the best <laughs> domain name. But essentially, maybe Amazon could do something like that and become... Uh, have these different companies. So eh, there's some issues, lots of issues there. But I do these thought experiments about the future. You know, I love all this futurist stuff. And I'm always thinking five years ahead, 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, uh, when I fully intend to still be (laughs) doing all this stuff, probably in a different way, obviously. Uh, Right. So my, my thought there is, how much do you think Andy Jassy values books, ebooks, audiobooks, and other content, which might include uh, Amazon Studios and all the other things they do that are the content side? Where would those things sit on the revenue list and how important are they to the business? So that's really an interesting idea. And another question that I've considered is, could Amazon split out the content side of things so the antitrust issue goes away? And what impact would that have on authors and the publishing industry? So basically, if you own the store and you own the advertising, but you don't own what is sold there, would that just make it all go away? Which is an interesting question. And yeah, there are a lot of interesting questions in the world right now. But uh, remember, just because the news is full of really awful warmongering and uh, yeah, 
really terrible things. The other things have not gone away. And the news cycle, I mean, obviously, there are very macro societal things happening. But meanwhile, business continues. Law suits march on. Technological change continues. So even though our human brains can't just, we can't fathom all this stuff, right? It's it's difficult to fathom. Uh, but we do have to keep abreast of this stuff because while the bigger things happen, we also need to, those of us who make a living this way at least, need to sustain and uh, sustain our businesses, sustain our creative life and all of those things. But don't worry, (laughs) or at least don't worry about this stuff. There is plenty else to be worried about, that's for sure. But I think about all of these things, so I'll keep sharing the journey, I'll keep sharing what I think. And of course, these are all my opinions, Uh, I share the news and then I think about the possibilities of what that might mean for us. And again, it's not right now. It's all stuff that's in the future. But (laughs) as we've seen, time marches on and the future just appears quite quickly. I can't believe it's March already. (laughs) In useful stuff. So first of all, the Six Figure Authors podcast has a discussion on pen names this week, which is very useful, as there are many reasons why it's a good idea to use different names and also many reasons why not to. <laughs> Lots of people ask me about this, of course, because I have Joanna Penn, I have JF Penn. I am very happy with my decision to do that. But I definitely think the Six Figure Author show has a lot of good points and definitely worth a listen. Even if, you know, like me, you've already made the choice, it's good to think about <laughs> things. Also, I love hearing the insights as to what pen names uh, people have left behind, like Andrea just ditched one completely and ignored it. And sometimes we feel like that. (laughs) So yes, check that out on the Six Figure Author, Six Figure Authors podcast. Also a tip for the business side of things. And thank you to Karen Inglis and Stephen Connor, who advised me on this. So as indies, we receive payments in a lot of different currencies. And there are often significant, significant bank fees. So, for example, uh, for Amazon Europe, there's all these different European stores and we get, I think, like five or six different payments in euros from Amazon. Now, because in the past, all of those payments have come in separately into my bank account. So I've received six payments of which some are quite small. It might be five. I can't remember. (laughs) But, you know, some of them might be smaller than others. And sometimes the bank fees for that, because it's essentially an international transfer. uh, And I use my main bank is um, a bigger bank. But what you can do is use WISE. So WISE business. And I have a affiliate link where you can get a free transfer with saving you up to eight times on average than regular banks at thecreativepen.com forward slash wise, W-I-S-E. Now, what this means is you can go into your Amazon account or if you do other payments, like I'm looking at actually getting paid more into Wise than I am into my main account. So you can, this month, and I've tested this, so I tested it for euros and Canadian dollars, uh, which are not, you know, my my most significant payments are in US dollars and GBP. So I switched my euros and my Canadian payments to go to Wise. And so all those payments went into Wise. They basically give you bank account numbers to enter into your 
Amazon account. So you go into your Amazon account and you can change the bank account per currency. So I did that, the money went in and then I transferred all the euros at once and I saved something like 26 euros on that transfer than I would have, uh, which is... $30 or something. I can't remember what the euro transfer is, but you know, that's not insignificant to anyone. Uh, so that's my business recommendation for the moment. Go check it out, thecreativepen.com forward slash wise, W I S E. And yes, that is an affiliate link, but you do get some benefits. Uh, if you use that link. And again, thanks to Karen and Stephen for that. And I know a lot of indies are using it. It's just, it's not, you know, when you have something on your list for ages and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then I changed it and I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I should have done this years ago. (laughs) Okay. So also it's my birthday this month. So I'm doing a 50% off sale on my courses, eBooks and audiobooks, all of them, if you buy direct, you can get my courses at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn. And that includes the AI assisted author, which more people are taking now and really finding it interesting, as well as obviously craft. I've got two craft courses. I've got uh, productivity, business plan, all of that. So go to thecreativepen.com forward slash learn and use coupon MARCH22, all caps, so MARCH22. And also you can go to payhip.com forward slash thecreativepen.com pen and use the same coupon March 22 to get 50% off my ebooks and audiobooks valid for the whole of you guessed it March 22. (laughs) So original. Right in my personal update I spent quite a long time preparing and recording and editing and doing a transcript for a new video on NFTs for authors creativity, collaboration, community and cash. Yes, I have made a video presentation, (laughs) which I rarely do these days. Now, I wanted to do a video because I feel like I can have some eye contact (laughs) through the video screen. And this topic needs the personal touch because I know I've had some of you message me and said, stop talking about this stuff, Um, but I can't. And I feel like there's a reason Also, sometimes when we teach something, we understand it better. So putting this presentation together uh, really helped me. It's not going to be on the audio feed. It's on YouTube, but there is a transcript. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's on the blog. As this goes out, uh, you can also find it linked at thecreativepen.com forward slash future, which has all of my future stuff on. And in the video, I start with the basics. What is an NFT? And then why we need NFTs as our business model continues to change. Then I explain six different types of NFTs that authors could consider, what we need in a platform for NFT books, and how authors can use NFTs to expand creatively and business-wise, and why you need to watch out for the contracts you sign. So it's on my blog, the YouTube channel, and linked at thecreativepen.com forward slash future. And actually, that took quite a while (laughs) to do. (laughs) Thank you to my wonderful patrons who support the in-between-isodes. And in terms of writing, I've started on the Ark of Blood rewrites and thankfully it's better than Crypt of Bone, which in turn was better than Stone of Fire. So I don't think this will take as long, which I'm super pleased about as I really want to write something new. Like I mentioned, I think how to write a novel will be next because my brain is fresh with craft tips. And uh, I have other plans which I will be revealing soon. 
So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. There were so many comments about the the editing and rewriting episode. I'm lots of you are doing the same thing, and lots of you said it really helped. So thank you so much. Pam Harvey says thanks for sharing the story on the rewrite. When you were talking about writing style, I kept saying, "Oh, I do that and that." My head was so full of light bulb moments, I was temporarily blinded. <laughs> Slade Robertson says. This is one of my favourite episodes. My curiosity about other authors' creative process is boundless. I loved the technical and craft sections. It was fascinating. And finally, Kay Moore said, Just finished listening to the uh, lessons learned. Your comments about dialogue tags for audio resonated with me. I opened up my work in progress and immediately saw places I could switch out or delete says to strengthen it. Thank you. So thank you to everyone. And you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Draft to Digital and I'll play a word from Kevin Tumlinson in a minute. Just to say, I use Draft to Digital for wide ebook publishing to lots of extra stores and libraries and also for payment splitting with the relaxed author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre. And I'm excited for the integration with Smashwords Systems so we can reach even more people in even more stores. Check out episode 604 for more of a discussion on that. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show and the the extra shows like the NFT video are supported by my patrons. Thanks to new patrons this week, Claire and Eileen Omosa. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months. You are all fantastic. And you can support the show uh, for just a few dollars or they also have a ton of other currencies they just added. So lots of different currencies you can support the show in. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I'll be recording in the next couple of weeks. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Kevin, and then we'll get into the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital bringing you DDD smart author tip number 13. You, everywhere. That's one of our goals here at DDD. We're aiming to build tools that help you and your books be everywhere that your readers might be looking. And to do that, we've built a whole bunch of tools that you can use for free. Author pages, book tabs, reading lists, universal book links, those are just some of the ways we've got you covered in the world. And of course, we also distribute your books to hundreds of retailers, subscription services, and libraries all over the world. Helping you reach more readers is what we're here for. And we keep improving on that every day. draft to digital we are self-publishing with support. Find more at d2d.tips slash creative pen. That's pen with two N's because we're big on the numeral two around here. Don McKelleher is the author of crime and action adventure thrillers featuring queer women across three different series. She's also the author of Breakthrough, Overcoming Creative Self-Doubt, Writer's Block and Imposter Syndrome. So welcome, Dharma. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of the show for almost since the beginning. So it's such an honor to be here. 
Oh, thank you. And I'm excited to talk to you. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and the indie world. Ah, well, I started writing fiction back in the late 70s. I mean, I was a teenager at the time writing on a manual typewriter. I kid you not. It was a manual typewriter. And and I just played around with it for several years through high school, college. And then life issues got in the way and I came out as transgender. And so I just spent a few decades basically uh, dealing with that and the fallout from that and just trying to rebuild my life. And then in 2007, someone mentioned to me something about National Novel Writing Month. And I'm like, what is this? And so I got excited about it. I was like, hey, I could start writing again. Because at the time, I had quit my uh, day job to take care of my in-laws. They were elderly and they needed some help. So I had some extra time on my hands. So I started doing that. And my first two books were published by Random House in 2016, and when they didn't renew the two book deal, uh, I'd been a fan of your show for a few years by that time. And I'm like, well, maybe Joanna's gone to something here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, OK, I'm going to do this myself. And like eight books later, 10 books later, <laughs> I've lost count at this point. So, oh, no, that's fantastic. So, so tell us a bit more about your indie experience then, because obviously you, you were traditional with those first books. And then you had to learn all this new stuff. And a lot of people coming out of traditional publishing at the moment, really, and trying to see what it's like. So any thoughts on that transition? My goal was to put out books that were every bit as professional as the ones that Random House published. It's important to get a professional editor and to get professional covers designed. But there's so many uh, wonderful tools out there. I mean, I use Scrivener. I use Vellum. I use just all these these really great tools. And I actually, I've gotten to the point where I'm doing my own covers now just because I have some graphic design background. So I understand the principles and I understand the tropes of my genre as far as covers go. So, And then the other thing that I feel people coming from traditional publishing don't quite understand is how the money works. Because of course, with, right. with trad, you get paid up front, or maybe if mm-hmm. you don't get paid up front, you get royalties eventually. Whereas in right. the you know, that you have to pay some money up front and you might get some every month, but it might be really small. So how did you adjust to the way the money worked? Well, I wasn't getting a lot of money up front anyway. So at least by doing it this way, I'm getting paid more regularly. So instead of quarterly, I'm getting paid monthly. So it it really wasn't that much of of an adjustment. Well, that's great to hear because I do say that to traditionally published authors. It's like, look, think of it more like a monthly, a smaller monthly salary rather than potentially a bigger block all at once. Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, the contract that I signed with Random House, they were doing these kind of ebook only deals where there's no advance, but you get 50% of the royalties. So that wasn't really that much of an adjustment. So Mm. (laughs) fair enough. It it, It was less of a typical traditional publishing deal. Absolutely. Okay, so after so many novels, why did you decide to write Breakthrough, your, I think your, your first nonfiction, right? Yes, it is my first nonfiction book. I kept seeing authors who were far much more, far, far more successful than I was struggling with imposter syndrome, who kept, they, they would post that they, they're just so frustrated with writing, they feel like their stuff was crap. And, and I'm like, wow, you, you're, you're like, 
bestsellers and you're, I mean, you're making a living with your writing and you're getting these big uh, publishing deals and you feel like you're the imposter. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and myself, I mean, I struggled with low self-esteem from an early age, long before I even came out as transgender. And so I, I totally get that. Just this, this nagging feeling that you're just not enough. Um, and when I came out as trans, I, I dealt with a lot of trauma, PTSD, depression, uh, for a while, some substance abuse. And I became a person that really hates to see other people suffering. It's just how I am because I know what it's like to, to deal with these things. It's one of the things that drew me to the practice of Buddhism, which I draw heavily on in the book, the chief tenet being the ending of suffering. And so I saw, especially with the pandemic, you know, everybody's feeling it. And I just wanted to help people enjoy writing again. Well, let's talk about that uh, low, low self-esteem and the feeling of not being enough. And obviously, we'll try and keep it specifically to writing. But as you right. said, these things can spill over into your, your life or perhaps come from the rest of your life. But in terms of that low self-esteem, the feeling of not enough, how do we address that as writers? We build up this uh, sense that to be a real writer air quotes, is we have to be something that we're not. We have to be something different than what we are. And I came across a quote recently, basically saying, we see our writing and it sounds like us. And it doesn't sound like Stephen King or Stephanie Meyer or, or whoever our favorite authors are, Elmore Leonard. And it, but it sounds like us. And we feel like because it sounds like us, it's somehow less than. And really... That's, that's the, the juice. That's the stuff that makes it great is it's coming from our unique voice. And one of the things we have to do is we have to start letting go of these markers of success as our sense of worth. You know, I, I'll, I'll be happy as an author. My stuff will be good when I sell a hundred thousand copies or when I can quit my day job or when I win an award or whatever it is. And we think that's what makes us valid as authors. And even when we get that, it doesn't make us happy because then we're either, it's just like, okay, but what happens next? You know, is my stuff still going to be good? Is it, do I really deserve this award or what this, whatever marker of success and we really have to get back. I find that the joy comes back with really learning to enjoy the process of writing again. If, if the other stuff happens, that's great. But if, but we really have to uh, focus on learning to enjoy our process. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like sometimes we get so bound up in all the other stuff. Yes. <laughs> the marketing and the like yes. words and well, ads and stuff. And it's like, go back to the writing. And that's a happy place. I, I As we're recording this, I recently back from New Zealand and, you know, had right. jet lag and I'm yes. sort of 2am, 3am. And it's actually been brilliant because <laughs> there's nothing else to do at that time of day except right. <laughs> go back to the writing. <laughs> And, you know, at one time we enjoyed the writing. No one forced us into it, I'm guessing, you know. Mm. And we did it because we enjoyed making up stories and making up characters and and playing make-believe, playing like, what if there was this character who was uh, dealing with this other situation and they needed this, but this other thing was standing in their way. And we had fun doing it before we knew all the rule, rules about 
info dumps and point of view and all this stuff. We just enjoyed telling stories. And if we can get back to that joy of, I'm not, I don't care. I mean, I do care. I want, I want it to succeed. I, w- I want the book to sell a lot of things. But more than anything else, I just want to enjoy the process of writing. And that's where the self-validation comes from I think it's like okay uh, I've actually gone back to sticker charts which I used to do when I started writing which is I write on my daily journal what I did Mm -hmm. and then I get a sticker if I did some actual first draft or editing process you know (laughs) and and it's I'm really loving it again I'm like yeah why did I stop doing sticker charts you know you get to this point where you think oh that's childish or oh I don't need that anymore but but if it makes you (laughs) yeah I mean you mentioned sometimes about the Clifton strengths. Mm. And depending on your Clifton strengths, that that achievement marker or whatever, maybe that's what you need to to help. But even just enjoying the process, just and just finding joy. I mean, if the sticker charts help, absolutely. But just getting back to the enjoyment where writing is fun again. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the late painter Bob Ross. No, he uh, he had a show here in the states for few decades, I think, called The Joy of Painting. And he's been uh, satired and, and parodied many times. But he's a white guy with his big afro, this very gentle Mr. Rogers kind of voice. He's always talking about happy mistakes and happy little trees and stuff like that. And he had a series called The Joy of Painting. It's on YouTube now. And it's just like, he just don't worry about making the mistakes, you know, we get hung up when we're writing our, a rough draft and it's like, oh, this is a shitty rough draft and this is garbage. And this is our original ideas aren't as refined as our later ideas. But, but if we just learn to enjoy writing rough drafts that are rough, then it's not as stressful and we can get some joy even when the writing isn't as, doesn't come out perfectly polished in the rough draft. And then I want to come back. You said uh, things that sound like us, our writing that sounds like yes, us. Yes, I found the quote that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And this is by uh, a an artist I saw on uh, Twitter just the other day. It said, people hate their own art because it looks like they made it. They <laughs> okay. think if they get better, it will stop looking like they made it. A better person made it. But there's no level of skill beyond which you stop being you. You hate the most valuable thing about your art. And that's uh, from a, a woman named Alicia Donze or Dons. But I read that just the other day. And I'm like, yes, that yeah. is it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But I think that one of the problems is, is, at least in the early stages of writing, is finding what is your voice, what does sound right. like, like us versus mm-hmm. practicing and le- almost learning how to write in general, especially with mm-hmm. fiction. Sure. I mean, I can, yes. I believe that Desecration was like my fifth novel, but the first book where I really felt like that's, that sounds like me. And mm-hmm. I'm going back and doing some rewrites at the moment of Stone and Fire. And it's so funny, because, and that was my first novel, and I'm reading it going, this doesn't actually sound like me. I mean, I can <laughs> see a little bit of me in this, but I know what I sound like now. So how right. has your process of finding your voice worked and how can we learn to lean into that? I, you know, I take every every book that we start, every book that I start, I don't know how I'm going to write it when I first start it. I'll do a little research on topics that need research. 
But I just start exploring ideas and I brainstorm and I, I accept the beginner's mind. I don't know how to tell this story because no one's told it before. We're not making widgets. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. And so I accept what the Buddhists call the beginner's mind. I accept that I will make mistakes and that it's okay. That this is, that creativity is an iterative and it's a messy process. I, I, I've learned to trust that, okay, my rough draft will be rough. And when I revise it, it'll be a little bit better. And when I revise a little bit more, it'll be a little bit better. And I can accept that that is the process that every one of my stories has taken. And I don't have to beat myself up about it, about any of the imperfections. Now, at the same time, I hold myself to an editorial standard. I, I will work on a story until I feel it's a professional story. I hire professional editors to help me with that. But one of the things that I, I do is I use affirmations or meditations. If I've, I've got some of the shame, the self-doubt that's creeping up, I say, you know what? I'm willing to let this go. I'm willing to see things differently. And these are some of the things that I share in the book. I don't know how to see it differently. I don't know what seeing it differently will look like or will it, will feel like, but I'm willing to, to see it differently. I'm willing to see my work differently. I'm willing to see my process differently. And this willingness opens up the door to a new perspective, a new experience of the writing process. Yes, I use affirmations too. And one of them on my wall is trust emergence, which is kind of, it's almost an affirmation, more like a, a statement. But that yes. when you feel like, oh, I really don't know, what's going on it like trust that something will emerge uh, yes. at some point <laughs> because no one knows how it's going to turn out when Stephen King or Margaret Atwood or whoever when Neil Gaiman when we start when we all start a story we don't know what it's going to look like because we're not making widgets mm. this is the story will emerge not fully formed but it will emerge as a process and when we learn to trust our process and it can be different from everybody. Some people are going to be organic writers. Some gonna, are, are going to be outliners. And some of us are a hybrid in between. But we, we have our own process. And if we allow it to evolve, if we allow the story to evolve naturally and emerge, as you say, the process itself becomes more enjoyable. And we don't stress ourselves out about what is it, how am I going to make it work? I just trust that when I do it, it works. But then I guess, I mean, you talk about writer's block in the book and yes. people have different opinions mm -hmm. on writer's block. Yes. But let's say we are, we're trying to trust emergence. We're trying to relax into, the, mm -hmm. into our process and nothing's coming. Like, so yeah. how do we know when we are blocked or how does that feel and how can we get past that? I think, I think the uh, writer's block generally falls under uh, two categories. One is we're just burned out. We haven't been filling the creative well. We're trying to be one of these rapid release authors putting out a book every month. And some people can do that without getting burned out. But sometimes life gets in the way and we don't give ourselves time to relax. We don't give ourselves time to enjoy reading or watching television or movies or just filling up that creative well. Because if we keep churning and don't fill up that creative well, it's going to get empty. And then we're going to say, 
I don't have any more ideas. I had no idea what to write. The other type of writer's block is we're just so stressed about getting it wrong. I know for writers that really knock it out of the park, uh, right out of the gate, and then they have that sophomore syndrome where, okay, I I was a million-dollar bestseller with book number one. Now what am I going to do? But even if you weren't, it's just like, okay, I did it once. I, I published a book once. Now I'm afraid of getting it wrong. We get so worried about, okay, I no info dumps. Okay, this, this first chapter, this first page, this first paragraph has to be perfect. And we forget that when we were writing the first one, it wasn't perfect. We just have to allow the rough drafts to be rough. And we have to be uh, allow our stories to be imperfect. It, creation is messy. You know, I'll come along and say, you know what? I, I thought the story was going to go this way, but upon further reflection, as I've gotten further into the story, as I've, as I've gotten to know these characters better in this particular situation, I think it's going to, it would work better. So our better ideas usually come a little bit later anyway. And we realize that it's okay. We realize it's okay if the not so idea, the not so good ideas come first. We can put them on paper and then we can allow ourselves to get better ideas as we go along Mm -hmm. and realize that it, it, trust emergence, as you say, trust that the better stuff will naturally emerge as we go along the process of creating the story. Yeah. And and also across your sort of author career, because I I was thinking about um, sometimes you're, there's a feeling of being blocked because the project is too ambitious or you're not ready. You're not ready. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because before I started writing Breakthrough, I was working on the story that I'm working on now. And actually, I was working on the one that I just uh, turned into my editors. And I just, I wasn't feeling it. I just, it wasn't coming. It just, and I'm like, okay, so maybe I'll start something else. Cause I, I just wasn't ready for whatever reason. I wasn't ready to write it. And so that's when I got the idea for writing breakthrough and a nonfiction story. Like I've never written a nonfiction story or a nonfiction book. And I've, you know, and, and to ta- tackle this topic of dealing with self-doubt, because I'm not a therapist, I'm not a coach, I'm not a guru, I don't have a doctoral degree or a master's degree or anything like that. I'm just a writer in the trenches. I'm just sharing what's worked for me and what I have found works for other people. And I might have gotten it wrong, too. What I share in the book may not work for everybody. And so... but. So all these self-doubts started coming up with when I was writing Breakthrough, and I realized that's okay. I'm just telling my truth. I'm just sharing what's worked for me, and if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't work for you, heck, if you want a refund, I'll give you a refund. <laughs> I, you know, but I, I learned to accept the imperfections, and I think that can be a big step for a lot of authors is realize that no book is going to be perfect. Every book, it, there, there are going to be people that are going to say, oh, you know what, this just doesn't, I know everybody else likes it, but this doesn't, didn't jazz for me, you know, and every book gets one star reviews, every book. And so if you realize that there is no perfect book, there is no perfect way of telling a book, then we can allow ourselves to sit down in the mud and just accept the imperfections of the story and still 
do our best to to make it as professional and as entertaining as we can, but realize it doesn't have to be perfect because there is no perfect. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we have to, and this is very, this is a very difficult thing that's come up a lot in the pandemic, which is we have sure. to balance our self care and right. our um, mental health mm-hmm. with. The fact that we, especially on you know this show, we're writers, we're professional writers or are aiming to be professional writers right. in that we want to put out professional products, even yes. if we don't make a living this way. And so at some point, there has to be some sort of tough love, some, yes. okay, you know, it, it, it's all right to feel self-doubt. It's all right mm-hmm. to feel that things are difficult, but then right. buck up and do the writing <laughs> and get the edits and learn yes. these lessons. So how do we balance that self care with actually getting on with it? Um, I found that there's so many ways that we can work through this and, and different tools work for different people. You know, affirmations, meditations, just being in the moment, being present. You, you share a lot of tools yourself in the healthy writer and the relaxed author. And we have to become willing to take care of ourselves, to nurture our psyche. And I find that if we do that, if we find that we're in a, in an okay place, it's easier to tackle the other challenges of dealing with the edits or dealing with, okay, I've got to meet this deadline. You know, I was struggling to meet this last deadline, <laughs> but I said, it's okay. I'm going to take care. And you just make the best choices. I, my, my philosophy is start with love. Start with love, and that will give you the stability to tackle the hard things. And I know that sounds very woo-woo, very Buddhist, very touchy-feely, but I find that it's true. You know, if we can get to our, find that emotional stability, take care of ourselves and start with love, the other stuff will find that strength to, to tackle the hard stuff. Hmm. So you mean love for ourselves and love for the writing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess in a way, I mean, love's a difficult word, but some kind yeah. of feeling, and, and let's use love, for our readers, <laughs> for those people who uh, receive our work. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's so important in our writing, obviously, we don't need to think about readers when we're writing because we're just writing our thing and we're right. doing our stuff. But equally, we create a professional finished product and we right. do marketing because right. we want readers to enjoy our work or find our work useful. Right. So yeah, I, I like that having positive energy throughout mm-hmm. the process. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because when we get that that one-star review from a reader on Amazon, or we get uh, a review from a a professional editorial review that calls us out on something. I remember the first time I got a a negative review uh, when I was uh, with Random House, and I went crying to my agent saying, is this true? Is it really true? And they were saying something stupid like, oh, there's just too many gay characters or something. And I'm like, Am I, did I make a mistake? It's just like, and she said, no, it's fine. That just doesn't didn't connect with that reader. It's okay. You're doing good stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and people won't always like what we write. <laughs> exactly. You know, I take a very serious political stance, a very liberal progressive stance in my writing because that's where I'm coming. You know, I write about a lot of social justice issues in my crime thrillers and as do a, a number of others, uh, especially authors of color and LGBT authors, because we've been, we've had to deal with these issues in our lives. 
And so my books are not for everybody. <laughs> well, let's talk about that then, because obviously you've mentioned you're, you're transgender, you write queer characters, right. and many authors would like to include more diversity in their books. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I write characters of color, I write characters mm-hmm. of different sexualities, but it, it let's face it, right now, there's a, it's a very difficult culture of offense and canceling and but a lot of people are afraid and they feel like maybe it's just better not to say anything or maybe just not get I, involved, not I write think, it. So what I should think, we do? I think we hear, I hear this term about cancel culture and everything like that. And usually when this canceling occurs, it's when people have intentionally written things that are harmful to marginalized people. Um, for the large part, I mean, there, there are some other situations, of course, but basically if we're writing a character that is outside of our lived experience, it's very helpful, first of all, to do some research about people who have that lived experience and to take more than just a token effort in doing it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to name this character such and such, and I'm going to call him that, and I'm going to put in all these stereotypes about what I think people like that do or are. We have to be mindful of not causing harm to people in marginalized cultures. I am happy when uh, non-transgender or cisgender authors um, write trans characters, but I encourage them to do some research. There's some great documentaries about, there's a, a documentary, I think it's on HBO or Netflix called Disclosure that talks about how transgender characters have been depicted in cinema over the decades. And you can learn a lot from that by becoming aware of what not to do. And beyond that, making your characters that are outside of your lived experience three-dimensional. That one aspect of that character's life, whether they're trans or they're a person of color or they're an immigrant or whatever it is, that shapes their experience, but it doesn't define who they are. And one of the things that I experienced, I, I, I came across as uh, reading stories about transgender characters is, especially in crime fiction, they're either the sex worker, they're the murder victim, they're the comic relief, and that doesn't describe the lived experience of, of the vast majority of people who are trans. Most of us are not uh, sex workers and most of us are not murder victims, although these are issues that we've had to deal with in our community. And so if you try to make the characters a little bit more three-dimensional, then then you run into fewer problems. And also, once you've written your story, uh, get some input from what's called a sensitivity reader. And the goal of a sensitivity reader is oh, don't say anything that'll ruffle feathers, but it's rather pointing out things that, okay, this could, this issue could potentially cause harm. This reinforces a harmful stereotype that is not really true, not really authentic to our lived experience and making suggestions like you might want to try this instead so that it still works in the story, but prevents, uh, pre- presents a more authentic experience to the reader. I've worked as a sensitivity reader for other authors, and I've hired uh, sensitivity readers. I wrote a character that turned out to be intersex in one of my stories, and I got, I hired a couple of sensitivity readers who are intersex to make sure that the experience that I explained 
uh, came across as authentic. Because we're, we're looking about authenticity. When you write stories about police procedurals, it's a good idea to get input from retired cops or retired FBI agents or whatever to make sure that what we're, the story that we're telling is authentic, that the characters sound authentic. So where have you hired sensitivity sensitivity readers from? Like, where, Have you got any resources you recommend where people I, can go? I just kind of, I just put it out on like social media saying, hey, I'm an author. I'm writing a character with this lived experience. Uh, does anyone know, can anybody put me in touch with someone that has this lived experience so that I can connect with them and mm. make sure that this works? I don't know of any, there used to be like a, a website that had a database for sensitivity readers with different experiences. And I don't think that's around anymore. Mm. I actually just, like what you did. I've done that too. And in fact, I normally find readers from my community, people of color, for example, or right. have had a, a Maori guy read The Risen Gods. And, exactly. um, you know, these things where the person reading is not actually a writer mm-hmm. <laughs> because right. you don't want, you don't, from that person, you don't necessarily want comments on anything else other than that particular side of Issue, it. Right. Like you yes, don't want. Exactly you know, proofreading notes or anything. You just you can, want more character notes, I guess. Exactly. And, you and can learn a lot wrong. from videos on um, YouTube. There are a lot of people with particular experiences sharing their stories on YouTube. And so I find that that's a good, good place to start as well. Yeah. And I mean, let's be clear, we're not just talking about sexuality or gender. No. It's also religion. It's also exactly. the culture you're from. And there are so many ways. But equally, as writers, especially as fiction writers, we mm. want to write other cultures, other people, yes. because it's about empathy. And we actually learn by writing other people's experience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess we we want more. We do want more diverse books, don't we, by any writer. Absolutely. Absolutely. We really mm. do. No, fantastic. All right, we're uh, changing tack again. I want to come back to something. <laughs> uh, something that you said in the book, which is okay. success is a delusion. So what, ah, do you, yes. what do you mean by that? And how should we be measuring our progress? There's this tendency to think that I will be a success when I achieve certain markers. Like when I sell X number of books, when I make X number of uh, dollars or uh, or pounds or euros in a year, when I win an award, I'll be a quote real author. We think that we'll be happy with ourselves and with our author career when that happens. And there often tends to be a sense of letdown when we get that, and then it's like I don't feel any different. Well, then maybe I didn't really earn that. And there's this just it's just this delusion that everything will be okay when I reach these things. And there's a Buddhist saying that says, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Because we're still the same authors, whether we achieve these uh, markers of success or not. I mean, they're great. They're fun. And it's great to be able to quit your day job or to win an award and say, I am an award-winning writer or whatever it is. Those are fun, but it doesn't change your author journey to the extent that we would like it to believe it doesn't, it won't make us happy if we're not already happy. And so that's why I call it, it's a delusion that's like, I'll be happy when I do this. Well, here's an idea. Be happy now. Enjoy what you're doing because nobody's making you do it. No one is forcing you to write stories. 
if you're a full-time author and you find that you're getting miserable doing it and you're burned out, maybe, maybe it's time to go back to get a day job or something. If it's really stressing you out or really burning you out. Um, I mean, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, I'm in a few hours, I'm going for a new job interview <laughs> that I really hope I get. And looking for a job is no fun. I grant you that, especially if you've been writing full time for a while. It's like, but I've, you know, I've read a number of stories about authors who've been full time for many years and they had to go back to getting a day job because they just couldn't do it full. They couldn't afford to do it full time anymore. And that's okay. We, and we importantly, that, and what you're saying is that doesn't make you any less of a success. We mustn't right. equate full-time writing with right. success. Right. No, totally. I mean, I, yes, for me, I hated my day job. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, I couldn't yeah. possibly do what I used to do anymore. I could get right. a different job. But yeah, yeah so, but I agree with you. It, you have to define what, but I, I also, but I'm a goal setter, you know, I need That's, to measure it success in some way so yes. if we accept that the goalpost will always move <laughs> yes exactly. can... that's yeah that's kind of what I was trying to say like we'll always be saying okay all right I, I won this award I, I quit my day job but I haven't done this thing I haven't done this other thing and I'll we keep pushing the goalpost further and further down the line saying well I'll be happy when Mm. And I think the on the opposite end of the scale is almost the, uh, my friend Sarah accused me of this the other day. She's like, you never stop to celebrate what you have achieved. Right. Like, but I think because as indies, you know, we're like, yeah, we're always, by the time one book goes out, we're working on the next one. Yep. We, we don't have that <laughs> launch party that a lot of traditionally oh. published authors have. And maybe mm. we need to actually celebrate success more mm-hmm. or celebrate yeah. our wins along the way. I yes. Guess. Toot your own horn or someone else will use it for a spittoon. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I think we need to do both. Like we need to yes. both not measure success, but also celebrate success. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Celebrate your successes, but don't base your happiness on those. No, that is excellent and a good way to end. So where can people <laughs> find you and all your books online? Uh, well, you can learn more about me and purchase my books at my website, dharmakelleher.com. And my books are also available on most re- uh, retailers in ebook and print format. You can connect with me on Facebook and on Twitter. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dharma. Thank that you was for great. having me. Thank you. So I hope you found the discussion with Dharma interesting. I certainly struggle with the balance between goal setting, releasing expectations of the result and finding joy in the process and then celebrating success if and when it happens. But life is about these tensions and no one ever said the creative life was simple. But let's all try to find more joy in creating. It helps combat the darkness. So next Monday, I'll be talking to Dan Holloway about improving your creativity, but also a more practical application of goal setting and personal reinvention. And I've been friends with Dan for coming up a decade, I guess, and we have a great discussion. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.